Hello, my name is Robert J. Rosenthal. I'm the managing editor at the San Francisco Chronicle, and you are listening to a podcast from the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to another edition of the TV Talk Machine podcast. I'm Tim Goodman, and today we have our first TV critic roundtable, appropriately enough to talk about The Sopranos, the HBO drama that brought about a real renaissance of dramas on television and helped change the landscape not only of cable and HBO specifically, but also of viewer expectations. The Sopranos returns Sunday, April 8th, for the final nine episodes of its run. I'm joined today and tomorrow in a two-part podcast by four TV critics and four friends, Matt Rausch from TV Guide, Peter Carlin of the Portland Oregonian, Dave Walker of the New Orleans Times, Picayune, and Bill Goodycoon's outgoing TV critic at the Arizona Republic. No major spoilers are revealed in either of these two podcasts, but there is a scene-specific discussion of the opening episode in our first podcast, which I don't think detracts at all from the viewing experience and is certainly essential to a thoughtful, critical discussion of the joy that is The Sopranos. In this first installment, we're going to talk exclusively to Matt and Peter. Both of these guys have seen the first two episodes, as all of them have. So I want to start with you, Matt, and your impressions of the first two episodes. Well, I'm just glad we're not talking about Sanjaya. Let me tell let me put it that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, to see these episodes, it's as you expect. They're unexpected. You never know where The Sopranos is going to take you from hour to hour. And again, I think coming into this, this world, and I also went to a screening, a public screening at Radio City Music Hall about a week ago, and what's also so amazing about this is, is how funny the show is, despite the fact that it's also very dramatic and very rich and all the things we love about The Sopranos. The two episodes don't connect particularly. They're, they're, they're so different from each other, mm-hmm. but in their own individual regard, they're both tremendously rich. The, the first episode in particular, I think, is wonderful, where Tony and Carmela go up to the mountains, where uh, who knew Bobby and Janice had a lake house, but they do. <laughs> and, and it all builds to this wonderful drunken set piece around a Monopoly game, and as I use as a metaphor, that it surprises no one that Tony plays by his own rules when he plays Monopoly, because to me, Sopranos always plays by its own rules. It, it confounds you all the time. You think you're going to get a big plot-driven episode, instead you get this contemplative episode in which all these family skeletons and, and, and resentments all boil up in this drunken game of Monopoly, and it's funny and it's ugly, but it's also funny when it's ugly, and it's all the things you want this show to be. It's just incredibly different than anything else you've ever seen. And then the next episode, it's much more about mortality. Everybody's body is falling apart. Someone meets their maker in a way that involves whacking not at all. And <laughs> again, it just makes you think this whole show is coming to an end that's in a, in a different way than most shows go to a grand finale. There's, there's no way of telling in these two episodes whether Tony is going to end up behind bars. I kind of doubt it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you do get a sense that it's coming to an end. And in, and in some ways, it's very satisfying to be coming to an end this way with none of its integrity uh, violated at all. Yeah, and, and Peter Carlin, did you have that same sense that this was heavy on the on the sort of pondering one's mortality as, as, as these top bosses look to the future? Yeah, in a sense, but I love the show when it's that way. I mean, to me, the most valuable moments, the most hard-hitting moments are, are often the most quiet ones. And, and the people who get caught up in whether the, you know, the guns are going off and, you know, and people's viscera is getting splattered across the walls, I think, are looking in the wrong direction. I, I, love, I also love that Monopoly scene that Matt was talking about. And to me, the most, uh, uh, in some ways, hilarious and scary part was the fact that Carmela was the real ringleader in terms of uh, you know, making up the rules and saying, I don't know, can we swear on this thing? <laughs> Or should we not? You can swear, absolutely. The one line of dialogue which I wrote down, even though I knew uh, I would never get to use it in print, was the part where she uh, where she's bickering with uh, with uh, Bobby, 
about whether or not they should use the free parking jackpot rule. Right. Where, you know, you put all the fines in the middle of the board, and then whoever lands on free parking takes all the money. Right. And she says, F- the Parker brothers, just play the game. <laughs> You know, which I thought was a great rule. And she was explaining right right before that. She says, well, technically, it isn't in the rules, but it adds a whole new level of excitement to the game. And I thought, that's their whole life right there, you know. I mean, that whole scene was just a metaphor for, you know, how these people view the whole world and, and their entire engagement with life. And it was, as Matt said, it was just a breathtaking scene, both, you know, because it was so telling and so deep into into these characters' heads, but also, you know, uh, hysterically funny. Right. Way. I right. think Bobby has a line during that uh, at some point where he goes, you Sopranos, you're too much. And, he, and, he, and he, he's just overwhelmed by all of this. Yeah. And then even though in his his horrible fight with Tony, which is just as ugly as it's possible to be and still have you rolling on the floor, uh, the payback at the end where, where Tony makes him pay in a, in a, in a very interesting way. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's, again, it's, it's both sobering and awful and completely satisfying. And it also ties into the whole family notion that this is one of the best family sagas we've also ever seen on television, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there's never been a better family show. No, the line is, uh, I wrote this one down, you Sopranos, you go too far! You go too far. (laughs) (laughs) Because they're insulting each other. You know, it's got nothing to do with the murders and the, you know, and all the the criminality. Right. I wish the the episode were titled Bullet in a Beehive. And (laughs) once people see it, they'll know what that means. But it's a wonderful image that I wish that somehow we got a flashback to it. But it's the Sopranos through and through. Yeah, that would have been great to to have a visual on that. And, And Matt, you touched on this too, and I want to ask both you guys this. It was especially last year, you had to kind of find some of these funnier moments. But these first two episodes, uh, you know, the mortality thing really struck with me. But I, the, the first two episodes were really, really funny. Really funny. Oh, and episode two, Sidney Pollack, uh, the movie director who also right. occasionally acts. He was in Tootsie and, and all of this. But he has a marvelous role. I don't want to give too much away. But, I mean, the, when he recounts what took him from being a first-class oncologist to basically being an orderly in this hospital and the way he spells out the story, it is absolutely funny. I mean, oh. and at the same time, it's dark as can be, but the show yeah. the show has teeth. It really does have teeth. Yeah, my favorite line in that was when he said he had to commit to exactly. what he was fully doing. commit. <laughs> fully <laughs> commit. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, there was another uh, funny uh, director moment there when uh, Bogdanovich comes back, and Bogdanovich is a uh, Melfi shrink, and, uh, you know, he had been so dismissive of the whole mafia thing. And for him to be watching that faux newscast and uh, with Geraldo and, and, and to sort of like have planned out and bet who was the rising dawn was very funny. Yeah. No, he had been like uh, super obsessed. I remember she accused him, mm-hmm. Dr. Melfi accused him in, in one of their therapy sessions when he brought up patient soprano. Right. Uh, she <laughs> says like, you're just obsessed with this mob thing. But I thought that was a really interesting and telling moment too. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. I, I've also found in this whole final season, because this is kind of like part two of a season that began a while back and it was split in the middle and a lot of people were unsatisfied by the way the first half played out. But all through this final season, I found the Melfi sequences with Tony to be a lot better than they had been in, in, in many of the most recent seasons. I just think they've really been nailing those scenes because I think if they're trying to tie all of this together and after Tony got shot and has had this sort of second chance to look at life and he's really reflecting on legacy and you know who's coming next and what am I leaving to the world, that the sessions with Melfi I think are just a lot richer than they, than they had been in a while. Mm-hmm. I always find, I, I found uh, for me the progression of the show from season to season, it's almost like you can 
you know, in my mind, I imagine it circling downward sort of further and further into the depths of this guy's really tortured psyche. And one of the things I think The Sopranos does better than anything that's ever been on TV are the dream sequences, which are both, you know, surreal as dreams are, but also so tied into what we, what has already been established mm-hmm. in some ways about, you know, the, the real fundamental, um, uh, you know, dysfunction within this guy and within his world mm-hmm. that comes out in this kind of, you know, especially like in that, remember that 22-minute dream sequence from, I think it was the fifth season? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And then last, in the beginning of last season, the, that out, I mean, I don't know how long it was ultimately, but that coma dream, you know, after he'd been shot, and he was imagining that he was that salesman, Kevin, Kevin Finnerty. Right, you from know? Costa Mesa. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. uh, Costa Mesa. It, it is the greatest existential mob drama we've ever seen. The thing is, you know, with people's anticipation for the show coming back, and there's always such long breaks, and everybody mm-hmm. expects it to be a TV show, even though we know it's really not a TV show, it's something much bigger and deeper and richer than that, that, that do people really want this existential story? It's just a story that David Chase had to tell, and I, I am thrilled that he was able to pull it off this way. I mean, the visionary aspect of this show, as you mentioned, with those psychological dreams, sequences is just like nothing you see anywhere else on television or anywhere right yeah to me the signal thing has always been and we get this a lot like when our tv critic uh, conventions when david chase and the people show up i mean for years the question people wouldn't stop asking is what happened to the russian guy because you know in that that pine barrens episode from a few seasons back mm-hmm. where uh, christopher and Polly um try to whack this russian mobster for some real or imagined slight and uh, drag him off in the back of the car, but then when they open the trunk, it turns out the guy's still alive, and he hits Christopher with a shovel and runs off, and they actually shoot him, and you can see the blood sort of seeming to erupt from the head, but the guy keeps going and vanishes into the woods, and they spend the balance of the episode trying to find him. And everyone keeps asking, is he coming back? Is he still alive? Like, And as David uh, Chase said, it doesn't matter. The guy was essentially a wraith. He was a dramatic... Um, tool mm-hmm. to leverage these guys off into this kind of un, you know into the into the woods overnight to you know where we learn so much about their relationship and their characters and you know that's the important thing how they got there doesn't really matter right and it almost is in some ways i think just more mysterious and better that the russian dude was unkillable you know while these guys were so very quickly they're so yeah. void you know inside that you know they've just almost vanished into another sort of existential hole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it kind of adds to the legend of the whole thing. This guy, this Russian mobster, he's part of the legend of this entire series now. And, and if it were a more conventional conclusion, and if he'd followed it up in the next episode like a regular TV show does, it plays more like a soap opera, you would have totally forgotten about it. It haunts us to this very day. Mm-hmm. I, I used to love it when uh, we'd have those sessions at the TCA with David Chase, and people would ask him plot questions, and he, he, he swats it away like gnats. I mean, exactly. that is so not what this show is about. Right. Yeah, yeah. I actually like sort of this nebulous, real world, things aren't neatly tied up in a bow kind of thing that they've been doing on The Sopranos Mm -hmm. since it started. But do you think for an audience that that, especially now that it's going to end and it's going to be over, do you think that that is going to be really troubling for them, for for like sort of the, the general population? In blogs, internet chat rooms, and things like that, yeah, you'll you'll hear that frustration. But I think when people sit back in the long run, and you know this show's going to live on in DVD the way that great literature lives on in shelves and libraries and all of that. That wherever he takes us, I think that the, the true fan of the show will be satisfied with whatever he does, whether there is a true quote closure or not, which I would kind of doubt there will be. Right. 
And I think in some ways, the you know, the the great freeing thing about HBO is the kind of the unstated slogan that guys like uh, Chase get to take to heart, which is screw the audience. You know, I mean, follow your muse. I mean, and and, and say the things and, and create the show that you want to create. Right. Tell the story that's important to you in the way that you know the, that you that you feel like doing it. And he's, you know, I mean, and he's really, I mean, I think established that as, you know, in in the finest possible way. Mm-hmm. I don't think it displays contempt for the audience. I think it, it, it displays a, you know, a trust or confidence in them. Right. I think, and that's that's sort of the the. It's like an adult drama. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to pander to you, which is sort of set the, you know, set the show apart and set a lot of HBO shows apart. And of course, it makes our jobs a little easier. We're we're talking in this segment with uh, TV critics Matt Rausch and Peter Carlin, and I want to ask you guys sort of the the simplistic question here, uh, but not so simplistic is, you know, I know it's kind of a cheat, but what do you think is going to happen to Tony? And I guess whether you care, uh, first and foremost. But what do you think is going to happen to him? And 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 what would you like to happen to him? I mean, I, I, I am so in the hands of David Chase at this point that for me to presume to try to even predict, it, what interests me is that it came on the same week as The Shield returning for a new season, mm-hmm. and The Shield is so story-driven, and it's such a melodrama. I think it's great, great melodrama. I love The Shield, and without Sopranos, there's no FX, there's no, there's no Vic Mackey or any of this, but it works on such a different level. To, to, to wonder whether Tony Soprano is going to get whacked or end up in jail or just sea. I, 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 I think, you know, in this first episode, there's so much of him looking out at sea. I think, right. to, to me, the end of The Sopranos is him watching an old mob movie in his bathrobe with ice cream in his lap and, and looking at what his image of what being a mobster was supposed to be about and how it just never came to pass. So he's looking at the wreckage of his life, but not in any kind of melodramatic, story-driven way. Right, and you would like, Matt, you would like him to, I guess, sort of go out in that way rather than say... I want to think life goes on for these people in a way that we've been watching it go on in a while without maybe some big epic epic event. Although I imagine the next-to-last episode is what has happened almost every single season. Mm -hmm. Something major and cataclysmic will happen to some character that we know because almost always the next-to-last episode of any season of The Sopranos ends up being bad news for somebody that we care about. Um, but, but, but in that last episode, the Reckoning episode, I would love it. Sort of like what happened in the season after they killed Richie April. He and Carmela sit down and go, well, wasn't that something? You know? <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's kind of how I want it to go. I, I want it to feel like I've, I've just you know, finished a, a really solid novel or another chapter, thinking there will be chapters to go that we'll never see. Right. Peter? I agree. I mean, I sort of see, I mean, I think in some way Tony's hell is the fact that he never really is called to account or, you know, the calling to account is is that much more brutal thing that happens inside your own head late at night, you know. I mean, to me, that's, you know, that's the existential hell he ends up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just more of the same. I mean, it's like, in some ways, the, 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 the real topic for the season is less the things that end than the things that never end, no matter how badly you want them to. Right. And for Tony, I think it's just this fact that he's built his entire life around, you know, this lie. You know, the traditions and the life that were handed down to him by his parents were just utterly worthless, you know, maybe even worse than that, actually destructive. Mm -hmm. And he's figuring that out, and that is the hell that he has to live in. You know, he ultimately is, in a way, that, that Kevin Finnerty guy sort of lost without any real identity, without any identification, off in some bizarro netherworld where there's, you know, the horizon's on fire. Well, I think you're both right in, in that, uh, uh, you know, Tony not getting what he wants is really the, 
or not knowing what he wants really, or it just never goes right. I mean, just this this idea of succession for him is obviously, you know, with both Christopher and AJ, and he's you know in future episodes trying you know other possibilities. It's not it's not the storybook ending, or it's not the transitional you know, swiftness that I think he wanted, and, and it's not tidy. And I think that sort of represents the Sopranos as well. But if if this series does go out like you guys are talking about, where this sort of existential examination of where where they are or if it just goes on like matt says you know just something happens and then and then then the reckoning episode as matt says that it just you know it's just another day that that they're going to live on and we won't know what happens to them i think that's a beautiful ending but i think people are going to be really upset oh they will be but you know what who cares (laughs) yeah exactly exactly (laughs) you know it's not tv it's hbo as they like to say and uh you know, I'd be I'd be delighted if people are upset by the ending of The Sopranos. I mean, the more upset they are, I think the better it'll be. Well, I mean, the show doesn't jump, jump the shark; it's all about the ducks, you know. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, but here now here's something that I, I've actually sort of gone on record saying I, I actually want him to die, and and I'd much rather him die than uh, go to jail or go. And I don't think he'd ever go in a witness protection program. But I don't want that, and I, I essentially don't want any future movies. I don't want any big screen Sopranos movies. But you know, this notion of, of him dying. Would you be at all surprised, since we only got two episodes, if, if it happened in, like in the sixth episode? If, it, if there was going to be a stunner and Tony was going to die, do you think that he would die in that penultimate episode or a little earlier to let that shock and, and transition drift over the last few episodes? My gut would tell me the penultimate episode because of the tradition of the series, but also the fact that we've been confounded so often by the big event happening in the penultimate episode, not the season finale, that maybe he would do it earlier. But I don't, I, I don't see it happening. I mean, the fact that he got shot and went through that, mm-hmm. basically, like you said, the coma dream of the first half of the season and all of that, I just can't imagine that he's going to take another one in the gut. Yeah, you know, to me, one of the things I thought was really interesting about the first uh, couple episodes is the, I mean, and also one of the funnier parts has to do with Christopher, the movie that Christopher, the mob slasher movie that that he's just produced. Yes, Cleaver. Cleaver. And and note the significance of that word. I mean, not only the the fact that it causes trouble with the Eldridge Cleaver estate, which I thought was funny. (laughs) One of the great lines. (laughs) Yeah, right. Just tossed off, too. Didn't Uh go anywhere. Just boom. But also, I mean, what what does, you know, a cleaver do? I mean, divide you know, cut things in half. And Tony is clearly upset with, you know, this direction that Christopher's taking. You know, I mean, he's always treated him as a son, and now he feels so violated by the fact that Christopher's moving in this other direction, which has apparently something to do with his sobriety, or at least that's what he claims. Right, right. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm thinking there's going to be some serious fireworks there as the season goes on. Well, I love that I love that we're talking about the metaphor of the cleaver, which is symbolic also of... Uh, of you know if you're you know Japanese people never give knives to people as gifts because it it, it symbolizes the the severing of the friendship, uh-huh. but you know we, you know to talk about it metaphors and and yet in Christopher's world there really is no metaphor the the, the scene in Cleaver where he essentially just gives it to Tony right in the head I mean that's <laughs> right. <laughs> It's just because somebody got to Saul first, really, is what it's all about. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, now one of the things too that uh, um, do you did anybody buy into the fact that there's going to be uh, I know we've talked about it just sort of going on, and, and but if, if, if there's a transition, do you think that Car- that Carmela plays any part in that? Well, it was intriguing to me how her particular brand of amorality was so front and center this time around. The fact that after the big uh, fight between Tony and Bobby, she was very aggressive about you know this idea that Bobby had somehow sucker punched Tony, mm-hmm. you know, and, and had like half a dozen 
reasons why it was a totally unfair fight, even though Tony's initial impulse was, hey, it was a fair fight. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you know she's finally uh, getting some movement on selling that spec house, right. which is built from you know cardboard, essentially. Right. Um, I, I, there has been this contemplation that she may end up as you know the post-Tony leader of the family. I, I, I don't see that happening. But I mean, I think it's clear that she's matched him step for step through this dismal life they've led together for the last 20 years. And, and one plot strand that they may just leave as a plot strand because of the way the show operates, but I think one thing that Carmela, that could actually really sever the Tony Carmela thing once again for real, is if somehow or other there has to be a reckoning for the death of Adriana, which was one of the most upsetting you know, moments in the history of The Sopranos' life. Right. And the fact that she hasn't been able to shake it yet, she still asks about it. He keeps trying to distract her with projects like the spec house. But if at some point she is confronted with that again and has to confront the true reality of what happened, mm-hmm. that I think that could become a real spoiler for the last part of the season. That's, again, a very story-driven point that I'm not sure they're going to go to. But if they did, that would be something that would be truly epic that could just rattle their entire world. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that, that, that this thing with Carmela, too, if, I mean, who knows where it's going to go, but you know, the the first twelve episodes of this season, she's re, her her independence really kicked in. I mean, they really built that arc where she was she was seeking her own money, she was seeking her own job. She was she was sort of looking at uh, the women around her that were gaining power, and 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 it's interesting that she's sought that, she's got it, but she's also here we are at the tail end of the, of of the whole run of the Sopranos, and at least you know if if there's not a fallout soon, but at least right now she seems to be as close to Tony as she's ever been. Yeah, I mean, and I think that they reinforce that with her, uh, again, with that Monopoly sequence, where she was so quick and so articulate in explaining um, the benefit of, of making up your own rules in this game, exactly. you know? And then again, I mean, it, you know, it becomes a parable for the way they, they live their lives. Um, yeah, she is definitely a, uh, you know, an intriguingly amoral character. But I still don't see the episode, this series ending with them being complacent at the end. There's got to be something that's got to rattle them to the point. I mean, Chase is very ambiguous in all the quotes that he's given, but it's always about how they're aware of what they've been engaged in. Like all of us, they're going to have to live with their decisions. That's a quote that you know they gave us for TV Guide, but it, but at the same time, it's pretty much what he said all along. I keep thinking there's got to be something that's got to call them up to confront you know, the reality of what's left to them when this series is really over. Right. I think there's going to be some kind of unhappiness or unpleasantness yeah. for them. I don't think it's going to be a pat ending. Yeah, well, happy I think ending, no. And not like Six Feet Under, we're not going to see them all die either. No. I don't, yeah, it's not going to... <laughs> I hope although not. I like that ending, I don't, I don't think that that's going to be... That's not going to work for The Sopranos. No. Well, yeah. I think that we, when we've got uh, seven more episodes to go, we might be able to reconvene this and talk some more. Obviously, The Sopranos is rich with uh, rich with metaphor and storytelling. Um, I guess I'll leave... The last question I want to ask you guys before before we wrap this up as a series i mean uh, and as a tv critic is this something that's going to you know i mean obviously hbo has other stuff in the stable but is this does this leave a gaping hole for us as critics nothing to nothing to write about for the sopranos well it opened the door for so many things we're we're in a state right now of really great tv drama on a lot of different levels um great soap opera great dramas friday night lights i completely doing cartwheels over. Mm-hmm. So there's many great things still to to appreciate but i but i think that sopranos losing the sopranos it's like any other TV show. It had to end at some point. This is a good time for it to end before 
anybody turns on it further than they did during that first half of this season. Right. Um, and, and so I, I'm at peace with it going away. I'll miss it terribly. But what it opened the doors to gives me a hope for the promise of television in the future. And if he comes back to want to do another show, I'd certainly be welcome to have David Chase back. But really, it, it, I'm sorry to see it go, but I'm also very anxious to see what's coming next. Mm-hmm. Peter? Yeah, I agree with Matt. I mean, everything has to end eventually. And what you just don't want is for it to get crappy, you know. I mean, to, to, to see like, a, you know, three more seasons and, and feel that it's getting increasingly watered down and, and labored, it, that would be a tragedy. Yeah. But to have it go away at the top of its game, you know, you can't ask for, for anything better than that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. All right, well, Matt Roush and Peter Carlin, thank you guys for uh, joining me today, and we'll talk hopefully soon before The Sopranos finally wraps up. Yeah, Great. absolutely. My pleasure. Come back tomorrow for the second part of our two-part TV Talk Machine podcast on The Sopranos, where we will be joined by Dave Walker of the New Orleans Times-Picayune and Bill Goodykunst of the Arizona Republic.